Greetings, saints of resurrection. It's a pleasure to be able to open God's word again with you tonight. I will say that the printed title of the sermon uh, in the bulletin is a little misleading. I turned that in a little early. Um, While that is a minor point, the uh, vital importance of Thanksgiving is, is not perhaps an appropriate title. Rather, I would retitle this sermon as Deadly Sin and Life-Giving Grace. We'll be looking at the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 2 tonight. Chapter 11, which we looked at last time about a month ago, tells us David's descent into sin. Tells us how he, in his idleness, lusted. And then how he stole, how he took Bathsheba, committed adultery, and then murder to cover up his crime. David seems content at the end of the chapter with what he's done. Nine months have passed and the child of his adultery is born. But this chapter ends with kind of a to be continued. God is not pleased with what David has done. And so we pick up the next part of the story in chapter 12 tonight. Listen as I read the word of the Lord from you. From 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray. God, these are heavy words, but also words of grace to us. Pray that you would open our eyes to see you in this text and to see your grace and your peace to us. Speak your words to your people tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Nathan comes to David with a story. And you're probably familiar with the story, but I want you to put yourself in David's shoes for a minute and try to immerse yourself in the story. David is fulfilling his job as king. He's sitting there judging the land. And his friend, Nathan the prophet, comes to him with a story. He tells of two men. One is rich. He has lots of flocks and herds, sheep and cattle, fields and fields full of them. He'd be what you'd call filthy rich. On the other hand, we have almost the opposite, a very poor man who can afford just a single lamb. And this isn't a lamb that he's raising up for Christmas dinner. No, this is like a pet to him. He's probably named this animal. He says he lets it eat at the table with his family. It's like a daughter to him that sleeps in his arms. All's well until a traveler comes to the rich man. Everybody knows you're supposed to feed your guests. This should be no problem, right? He has flocks and herds and plenty of animals. He wouldn't even miss one. But yet, like Ebenezer Scrooge, he can't be bothered to give some of his to someone else. He abuses his power. He takes the precious pet lamb and slaughters it for his guest. At this point in the story, you're probably feeling indignation and anger against the rich man, just like David did. But Nathan points his finger at David, and he says, you are the man. And I want to ask you tonight, are you the man? Where in your life would Nathan the prophet come to you and ask you and declare your sin to you? I know it's easy to sit in the pew and to think about how this applies to someone else. But tonight I want you to ask, how does this apply to you? Where is God looking at sin in your life and how should you deal with it? As we look through the text tonight, we'll look first at Nathan's story. Then we'll see the word of the Lord to David. And finally, we'll see how David's sin is dealt with. I want you to see two intertwined themes in the text tonight. First, the deadly cost of sin. But then also, God's life-giving grace to broken sinners. The deadly cost of sin and God's life-giving grace to broken sinners. Chapter 11 that we looked at last time was dark. It recounted how David's life David's heart was hardened by his sin as he took, as he stole, as he covered up his crime of adultery, as he committed murder. God was absent from the text of chapter 11. He doesn't appear until the very last line of the story where we see that God had been watching and that God was displeased. But now at the beginning of our text tonight, God actively intervenes. We see the first glimmer of hope as the Lord sends Nathan David. God is no longer sitting back observing, but he's actively engaging in David's life. Nathan comes to David wisely and gently with this story. He engages the emotions and he draws David in and he gets behind the defenses of David's hardened heart. He only even speaks of the first crime of David, of taking and stealing. And David um, responds. Listen to verse 6. David says that the man should restore the lamb fourfold. David gives a right judgment. According to the law of God, the sentence for stealing is to restore four times. Kids, you probably know this from the story of Zacchaeus. At the end, after he has repented, he promises to give back four times to whoever he has stolen from. This is in keeping with God's law. And so David is here judging right. But we also see that David fingers the, man's, the rich man's problem 
much deeper. He says that this man deserves death. Listen to verses 5 and 6. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He swears by the Lord here that this man from his crime is worthy of death. He's worthy of death because he had no pity, no compassion. He didn't spare the poor man. If we want to look at a positive example of what it means to have pity or compassion, we can look at Pharaoh's daughter who had pity on Moses crying in a basket and pulled him from the Nile. But this is not what the rich man has. He has no pity, no compassion. We have an insight at this point in the text that David doesn't. We know that he is the guilty man. David has passed a right sentence and has rightly identified the problem. But we can see that David in his own heart and his own sin has had no pity. We can see the true depth to which he has fallen, how pitiless and um, lacking in compassion he was in the previous chapter. This is what our sin does to us. It makes us heartless, and we act without compassion towards others. Nathan confronts David with his sin as an act of God's grace. We, because we know the end of the story, it's easy to miss how perilous this was for Nathan. Consider that David has already killed a man to cover his sin. And so when Nathan comes to him, he's taking his life in his hands to fulfill God's calling to him. But yet Nathan comes as a messenger of grace. He comes because sin is deceitful and because David's heart is hardened. And without this word from Nathan, he's not able to see his sins. When others confront you with your sin, I want you to see it as God's grace. It's not easy to do to be confronted with our sins. We, like David, want to hide and cover it up. But God's sending his grace when he speaks into your life and convicts you of your sin. The Holy Spirit, God tells us in John chapter 16, verse 8, one of his chief duties is to convict the world concerning sin. He has several ways that he does this. One is that he uses your conscience. Even unbelievers have a conscience. Romans chapter 2, verse 15 tells us. And God, through the Holy Spirit, can speak to you in your conscience and convict you of sin. Now, our consciences are not infallible. But God also gives us another, more sure guide. He gives us the word of God. This can provide a check on our conscience. And it can also provide another means where God can speak to us through his word as we read it, as we sit under its preaching and teaching, as we immerse ourselves in it. He can convict us of our sin through the law. I'm reminded of Paul who said that he didn't even know what it meant not to covet until he read the law of God and that sin was revealed to him. And then as we see in our text tonight, Nathan the prophet comes. God can use other believers in your life to convict you of sin. Hebrews 3.13 tells us, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. While I don't have time to get into all the nuances of how we should approach others for their sin tonight, I will remind us that Jesus says before we confront others with their sin that we need to make sure we take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of theirs. If you do confront others with their sin, as this text in Hebrews 3 calls us to, do it with gentleness, do it with grace as Nathan comes to David. But make sure that, like Nathan, that you clearly confront the sin. 
when other people come to you, make sure that you respond as the wise man in Proverbs 9, who listens to rebuke so that you can be still wiser and so that you can um, grow and be thankful for what the Lord is doing in your life. Nathan starts gently here so that David's emotions are engaged and David convicts himself. Nathan used this wise approach to get past the defenses of David's hardened heart. But Nathan's following words are not gentle. However, they are still gracious. Let's now turn to the sharp words of grace that Nathan brings as he declares the word of the Lord. Let me read verses 7 and 8. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God at the beginning here of his word to David recounts his kindnesses to him. David was just an insignificant youngest son pasturing the sheep. And God pulls him and anoints him as king, strengthens his hand to defeat the giant Goliath, protects him for years as he flees from Saul, finally exalts him to the kingship over Israel and Judah. He gives him victory over the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Syrians, and even gives him peace so that he comes to David and um, makes a covenant with him. God has done all this. God has provided him with wise and beautiful wives. Um, the reference to Saul's wives, we're not told in 2 Samuel that David takes Saul's wives into his house, but as a conquering king, that would have been his right, and that would have even been a, a grace to those women to provide for and protect them. The point is that David was not lacking for beautiful wives of his own. But yet, David still sins. And so I think we should take a step back, particularly in this season of Thanksgiving, and we should see the dangers of ingratitude. God has provided all of this, everything David needed, but yet David was not grateful. In the end, he coveted the one thing he couldn't have, Uriah's wife, instead of being thankful for what he had in his own heart. I think particularly in this season, we can often think of Thanksgiving as something nice and an add-on, um, maybe even trite. But I want you to see Thanksgiving as an act of striving against sin. When we're tempted to want things that God has not given us, but if we instead turn to thankfulness for what he has given us, we are turning from our coveting and we're turning to the Lord. Thanksgiving is an active um, weapon to fight against sin. Like David, everything we have comes from the Lord. And so we should be grateful to him for every good gift that he has given us. Discontent with God what, what, what God had given him and with the boundaries that God has set is what led David into sin. But ultimately, it's not lack of gratitude that David's called out for. It's for despising God. Listen to verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? When David turned from being thankful for what God had given him to coveting, he despised God and the boundaries that he had set. I'm reminded of Adam and Eve and how God had given them everything in the garden, and yet they coveted the one tree that God had forbidden them. Men, I want to ask you, are you discontent with your wife or with your marital status? Has that caused you 
to fall into sin? Women, are you discontent with the children, with the husband, with the body that God has given you? When we are discontent, when we are ungrateful to God, our coveting despises him. This is why our sin is chiefly against God. Psalm 51 is a unique psalm in that it tells us exactly when it was written. It's exactly at this point in the text. It tells us in the inscription, when Nathan comes to David after he had gone into Bathsheba, that Psalm 51 is written. So I want y'all to turn there as well. We'll be looking back and forth between these two passages, so you may want to keep your finger in both places. For now, I'll just read 51 um, and the first part of verse 4. David is speaking here. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When one first reads that, you want to say, wait a second. What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about the sins that David's committed against these people? How can he say that his sin is only against God? But did you notice what, David, what Nathan highlighted in the text in verse 9 and also in verse 10? And then even again in verse 14. David despised the word of the Lord, he says twice. Later, he says that David utterly scorned the Lord. This is what Nathan brings up chiefly, because while Uriah and Bathsheba were victims of David's sin, his sin is ultimately against God's law, and it's ultimately out of ingratitude to God. Nathan is fully aware of all of David's sins. If you read the rest of verse 9, I'll go ahead and read that for us. He says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan fully is aware of all that David has done, but yet he puts his finger on the fact that David has despised the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord reveals the depth of David's sin, of his discontentment with and despising God. But revealing sin is insufficient. Like a cigarette addict, who can read a Surgeon General's warning and not stop smoking, we know that just being told about our sins is not enough. And this is why God reveals the punishment to David. Let me read verses 10 and 11. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. God is revealing the punishment that David um, is to receive for the crimes. At first, this seems harsh, but when we consider the extent of David's sins, his full descent and his hardening and the nine months of which these sins have been unfolded, we realize just how necessary and right this judgment is. But I want you to also see that this is much less than what David deserved. Back in verse 5, David declared that the man who had stole the one lamb deserved death. By his own word, David deserves death. But consider also, he's committed adultery. The crime for that, the punishment for that, according to the law of God, whether forced or not, is death. David's committed murder. Penalty for that is death. He's sitting under a threefold sentence of death. But yet that's not what God does. God gives him these serious and harsh punishments. 
But this is not the punishment, the full punishment that David deserved. And you know, as New Covenant believers, we know this even better. Children, you probably know Romans 6, 23. The first part of that verse says, for the wages of sin is death. You know, the rest of that verse goes on to tell the good news of the gospel. But for now, I just want us to see that all sin deserves death because it's despising God and his word. This means that when children, you hit your brother because he took your Legos, when we get angry with someone else and yell at them for cutting us off in traffic, when we're rude to a coworker, all of these sins deserve death. Yet that's not the punishment that our God assigns to David. The question is why? I think 2 Samuel 7 gives us the answer. Let me read verses 14 and 15 here from God as he makes a covenant with David. He's speaking of David, specifically of what he will do for David's sons. But as we see here how he treats David, I think it also applies to David himself. This is God speaking. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. You see, when Saul sinned, he lost his kingdom. Saul committed a crime of impatience, not waiting for Samuel the prophet to come, and he took what was not his right by sacrificing um, what should have been done by the priest. For that crime, God took away his kingdom, and ultimately Saul is killed by the Philistines. But this is not what David happens to David. God does not remove the kingdom from him. God does not put David to death. David is being treated here like a son. Children, I think you understand this. When you disobey, you receive discipline, you receive punishment. But you're not banished from the house. You're not kicked out of the family. Why? Because as a son, as a daughter, it's your right to receive discipline. God's punishment is just. And I want you to see also just how much it fits the crime. Nathan this morning, uh, Pastor Trice rather, um, spoke of the poetic justice of God's judgment and the curse to Adam and Eve. And in the same way, we see how David's crimes are justly fit to the punishment that God gives. Let me look again at verses 10 and 11. David murdered, and therefore the sword shall never depart from his house. David stole, and ultimately he has to pay back the cost of four sons. He loses the son that's born to Bathsheba. He loses his sons Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, um, all as a result of the outfall of his sins. David committed adultery, and his wives will be taken by another. And what David tried to conceal and cover up, God will reveal before the son and before the whole nation. God's discipline is meant to provide a warning to us, to warn us of the seriousness of sin and its deadly consequences to keep us from doing that, to keep us from doing it again, or to warn others away. It's meant to be a protection to keep us from sinning again. Think of the small child who steals cookies. If his mother just tells him, don't do that, but there's no punishment, he'll likely do it again. But if he knows, if I do that, I'm going to get disciplined for it, then he's much less likely to repeat that same crime. But there's also a second, person, second purpose in God's discipline. God is desiring 
to bring David to repentance. Hebrews 12:11 says, "For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it." God has adopted all of us as sons. After all, we pray, "Our Father who art in heaven." And we know that discipline hurts. Sin and its consequences bring suffering, and it's painful. But God desires for us to come to repentance so that we can be healed of our sin. God has declared the depth and the extent of David's sin through Nathan the prophet. But he's doing this with a desire for David to come to repentance. It's here that we come to a real key point in the story. Nathan has boldly confronted David with his sin and declared God's judgment. But how will David respond? Will he act like a wicked king and redirect his anger against Nathan and kill him? Or will he listen? David is at a tipping point here, and his response is crucial. Remember, as I said earlier, he's already killed to cover up his crime. But let's listen to what David does instead. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. True confession can be that simple. David admits and acknowledges his guilt. We can take this for granted in David's life, but remember how hardened his heart had been, how hardened in the deceitfulness of sin he was. This shows the work of the Holy Spirit in David's life, that he could soften David's heart and bring him to repentance. True confession that David gives us here is a great model for our confession. And it stands in sharp contrast to what we've been looking at with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were quick to blame shift and to even blame God himself for their sins. They wanted to cover up and to hide. But true confession is not defensive. David does not try to provide excuses or to justify his crime in any way. David freely admits his guilt. He acknowledges it before the Lord. And I want you to also see that true confession is directed to God. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. As we saw earlier, that's where his chief sin is. That's who he has sinned against the most by despising God. And so he goes to the Lord first. There is a proper place for repentance to others that we have hurt by our sin. But we first need to be reconciled to God. And so we first need to confess and repent to him. Now, the words that David says are not enough for us to know that this is true repentance. After all, Pharaoh says almost exactly these same words in Exodus chapter 10, verse 16. But we know that Pharaoh was only trying to get out of the judgment of the plagues and not truly repentant. But Psalm 51 comes in again here to help us truly see David's heart. Let me read the first four verses of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." These words show us the true depth of David's repentance, that he is truly broken before the Lord. David asks for mercy from God and for cleansing. 
And you know what's so amazing in this passage? In, our, in 2 Samuel 12, when David confesses, God is so quick to extend mercy. He responds almost immediately in the same verse. Let me read all of verse 13 for you. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just that quickly, immediately, God responds with forgiveness and grace to David. And the same is available for you too. Like David, our attempts to cover our sin always fail. We will not succeed because God knows our hearts. But like David, when you repent, when you confess your sins, God is quick to forgive. Forgiveness is available right there. God tells us in Psalm 103, verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so far can he remove our sins and our transgressions from us. God is able to do what we can't and to truly put away our sins. David at best could cover it up, but God doesn't bury our sin. He deals with them and puts them away. David would have a sense of why God is able to do this. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointed forward to this. David knows that the animal sacrifices in the tabernacle are meant for the forgiveness and cleansing and atonement for sin. Atonement is provided by laying your sins on an animal, by transferring them to another, and that other paying the penalty of death that you deserve, that David deserves. But that sacrificial system isn't the ultimate way that our sins are removed. Christ had to come as the true Lamb of God, as the true perfect sacrifice, and he took all of our sins on him. And that's why God is able to put away David's sins, because he put them on Christ, and they have already been, and in Christ, they are paid for and atoned for. And the same is true for you. Your sins have already been atoned for by the work of Christ on the cross. And so God can put away your sins just as quickly and as easily as he put away David's. This is why God is able to discipline and not judge David with the judgment that David deserves. This is why Nathan can tell David that he shall not die. For those of us who, like David, are sons of the true king, Jesus, we will not face that judgment now. Nor will we face it at the final judgment day. Repentance takes us from a sentence of death and restores us to God's presence. When Nathan comes to David, we see just how horrible David has been. Discontent with his abundance, he has despised the God who has given him everything. We also see just how destructive David's sin is to his own life. The consequences declared by Nathan as a fitting punishment for David's sin will play out all the way until chapter 21 in 2 Samuel. David's sin will wreck his life and his family. Don't take sin lightly. It is deadly poison. Even when we repent of our sin, there is still suffering. There are still consequences. All of these consequences remain after the Lord has put away David's sin. Look at verse 14. God declares through Nathan that even though David's sin has been put away, that because David has utterly scorned the Lord, there still will be consequences. David does not have to face the judgment of death that he deserves, but the discipline of the Lord and the suffering from sin is still severe. Heed this warning and repent quickly, brothers and sisters. Yet this passage is also a window into God's grace. God does not leave us in our sin, but graciously reveals it to us through the work of his Holy Spirit in our hearts 
and through the words of others in the church. He calls us to confession and repentance. And when we do, he puts away our sin and covers it by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we do not have to face a sentence of death anymore. In 2 Samuel 12, 9, Nathan says that David has despised the word of the Lord. But listen to verse 17 of Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Did you catch that? Although you have despised God by your sin, he will not despise your repentant heart. David was finally broken by his sin. When God confronts you with your sin, he desires you to be broken before the Lord too. When that happens, God will not despise your contrite repentance. Turn from your sin and repent quickly, and God will cover your sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace and hope it brings into our lives. That though we are sinners, that there is joy and hope in Christ. That you can and you do and you will put away our sin. Thank you for the freedom that the blood of Jesus brings to us. In Jesus' name, amen.